0: Well, good morning, church. It's always a blessing for us to be together. Before uh, we open up God's Word, I have something I'd like to say. Uh, If you weren't here last week, uh, you may not know what I'm talking about. If you were here last week, uh, you may not know what I'm talking about, but some of you probably do. At the very beginning, near the beginning of the sermon, uh, we had an issue with the slides not progressing at the speed I wanted. And there was an edge and a tone to my voice when I communicated that, that I immediately regretted. And when I watched it back later, it was worse than I thought. You know how watching yourself on video can do that? So, uh, I, but before I even left uh, church last week, I'd already talked to the person running the computer to apologize. Uh, But because it happened in this room and in this place and because of the cameras back there, it happened all over the world at the same time. Uh, I I want you to know I'm sorry for that. I should have handled that moment better. And I want this to be a community of faith where when we don't handle stressful situations with the kind of grace we want, that we own up to it and we do better next time. And so that's what I'm pledging to, to try my very best to do. Before we move out of this moment, though, I, I do just want to say something we all know, which is it takes a bunch of people working behind the scenes to make things work on Sunday mornings, and the vast majority of the time, it's seamless. In fact, you don't even think about it. It's like a computer program is running everything, and I assure you, it is not. Uh, there's all kinds of people uh, trying to listen carefully, to mix the mics, and to, to advance the slides, and... When you do something that's kind of invisible, and then the only time people think of you is when there's a problem, that is not a job that a lot of people sign up for. And so will you join me in expressing our thanks for our AV team and just all that they do week in, week out uh, to make that happen? I don't know how that happened, but I'm sorry. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning and this time that we have to be together, to be your people, uh, not only as we sing, but as we also gather around your table, and we feast on the goodness that you offer to us. And now, God, as we center our hearts and our minds on your word, our prayer is that you would help us to truly listen to what it is you're trying to say to each one of us. Doesn't matter how many times, God, we have opened our hearts to your word. You find new ways to reach us. And so we pray that you would help us have that experience this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so just real quickly to catch up on what we focused on last week uh, at this time during the, the service we wrestled with this this truth that I think we all know at some basic level, but we often forget. And that is that when we look out on the current state of our world and we see all of the places where things are not the way they're supposed to be, we see the darkness, we see uh, the people who are suffering, we see the injustice, we see the, the things going on where we just know this isn't the way things are supposed to be, we tend to start to kind of believe one of two things. Either we put it all on ourselves, all the pressure. We try to, to put it on our shoulders and fix every single thing that's broken to save the world. Or we, we kind of look at it and we realize how complex it is and, and how convoluted it is and how difficult it is. And we think, well, there's not much of anything I can do. So I'm just going to wait things out. And we talked about last week that neither one of those options is really telling us the truth of how God wants for us to see the world the way God wants us to feel about the world, to relate to the people in the world. And so we just kind of had a starting place, right, where we want to remind ourselves that on one hand, we can't save everyone everywhere. On the other hand, we don't just get to give up on the world, That God calls us to love the world, to share in the same love that that God has for the world, to be a part of it. To do what we can in the the ways that we can and not allow the things that are still going wrong to overwhelm us and lead us to a place of despair. Now, what we're going to do for the next few weeks is unpack that. Because it's one thing to acknowledge it and say that. It's another thing for us to try to actually do the work of imagining what does that really look like, right? So let's just kind of all get to the same place together. God, God and God alone, right, is the only one who can save the world. We can be witnesses to God's saving work. We, we even get recruited by God into God's saving work. We can be coworkers, but you and I... Cannot be the hero. Now, I realize that for many of us, that last statement is uncomfortable. Because whether we tell anyone else or not, we tell ourselves stories where we are the heroes. I don't just mean that we're the main character in the stories that we tell ourselves, and that maybe a lot of other people around us are just supporting characters, they're either helping us get where we want to get, or they're getting in the way. Uh, I'm not just talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about the fact that when we look at the things that are wrong, we imagine a future where we're the ones who fix it, and then we're recognized, right? We're not just acting as the hero, but we're regarded as the hero. And we think, well, that would make it worth it, right? Because we we realize that trying to save everyone everywhere, trying to fix all the things that have gone wrong, it, it would take everything that we have to offer. And it's hard to get our minds wrapped around offering all of that without thinking, but, you know, our, our name and our face and our story would be told all over. That people from every corner of the globe would feel gratitude when they hear stories about all the things that we've accomplished. And and the truth is, we do this every week when we come together as God's people on Sunday morning. We are trying our hardest in this moment to to put ourselves back in the role, in the, the proper place that God has intended for us from the beginning. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they're the heroes of the story. We cannot... And we will not take that place. Furthermore, we're not created to. And throughout scripture, we find that when people try to reach for a place that's God's place alone, they end up making a mess of just about everything. And, And so not only is that a truth that we need to hold on to, but we also want to hold on to to this future version of the world that we haven't dreamed up on our own. God's the hero, and God's also the author. And we all have places and times and opportunities to add lines to that story and and to make decisions that impact that story because God has given us that kind of ability. God has shared that world-making task with us, but there is no one who has as much power, as much authority, as much ability as God, as the author of life. And God's the one who gets to then dictate to us, tell us, define for us where the world is headed. And we read this passage last week, but I want us to read it again together now, where Through the prophet Micah, God tells us the kind of future we're going to have. And it's a courageous version of the future, right? It's not us finding a way to go backwards to some comfortable version of the past. And it's not just one comfortable version of the past because there's more than one of us in this room, right? So we bring with us all these memories and nostalgia about the good old days and how we just wish we could go back to that place But God says, no, I'm calling you, all of you, together to one place. And it's a place that I'm describing. It's a place that I'm defining. And the only real choice you and I have in terms of that future is whether we're going to share in God's future or run away from it. So let's read it together now. Micah 4, verse 1. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest Of the mountains. It'll be lifted above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion and the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations which are far away. They will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Every person will sit underneath their own grapevine, under their own fig tree. And there will be no one to scare them, for the mouth of the Lord of heavenly forces has spoken. This is the future version of the world that God says is possible. And if you're anything like me, it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like it's too good to be true. Because even though I have lived my life trying to grow in faith and trust in God, my imagination is often very much still livid to what I think I could pull off on my best day in my best moment. That world that Mike is describing is not a world that you and I have the resources or the, the giftedness or the the ability to bring about. We receive that world as God shares it with us, but we we can't just decide to make it happen. And we need to be honest with ourselves, right, that this future version of the world that we read about in Micah and other places in the Bible, it is shockingly different from the present version of the world. And we feel that tension. You and I feel that mismatch, and we want to do something about it. We feel like we have to do something about it. But when you and I, when we... I guess I would say when we try to force God's promises to come true more than we trust in God's promises to come true, it never turns out the way we hope. It just, it doesn't work. We start out with good intentions. We start out maybe with really helpful strategies. We we have these goals and these dreams and we recruit a bunch of people to join us in it. And we start out, and, and maybe we actually do start to accomplish the things that we, we hoped we could. But whenever ordinary, everyday people gather together to accomplish something, sooner or later, our struggle with sin is going to creep in. You and I, God, God has promised to deliver us from sin, but God doesn't deliver us from that wrestling match with sin all at once overnight. We're all in different places in that journey. And, and we can't wait until that struggle's over because that struggle's not going to be over this, this side of heaven to do anything. So we roll up our sleeves and we try to start fixing things. But before you know it, even if I set out to do something that I think God wants me to do, pretty quickly, I'm at the center of it. And then you're at the center of it. And then if we're not careful, what starts to happen is other people who disagree with us or see the world differently or have different values than us, they're not at the center of what we're trying to do. And in fact, they're on the outside of what we're trying to do. And if we're not careful, we decide the best thing we could possibly do is get rid of them, right to silence them that is never going to get us to this future version of the world that God is describing to us over and over again. Too often in my life, I have set out to do a good thing for God and I've ended up doing an imperfect thing for myself. And I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I'm frustrated And I can't imagine that I'm alone. And it's in moments like that that I think of stories that Jesus gives us in his teaching ministry. You know, stories like the parable of the Good Samaritan. And for so many of us, even if we didn't grow up in church, we know the basic structure of the story. Sometimes we forget the setup, which is... An upstanding religious leader saying, hey, uh, I can fix what's wrong in my life to access eternal life if you'll just tell me what to do. You set the hurdle, Jesus, and I can clear it. And Jesus says, okay, well, how do you read the law? What What do you think God's asking you to do? Well, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Do that, and you'll have real life. Not just life that lasts forever, but genuine, authentic life that starts now. And then Luke tells us, but but the guy wanted to feel like he'd already done what he needed to do. Now, isn't that interesting that this guy's looking at the, the world as it is? He's fully aware that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, but he's mostly concerned about what he needs to get out of it. So even though there's suffering and injustice and all kinds of problems in the world, he's just focused on what he needs to get out of it, which is eternal life. What does he need to do? And Jesus says, you know what you need to do. And he just wants to justify himself. He's not trying to help bring the world closer to anything for anybody else. So Jesus tells him this story. There's this guy. He's trying to travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, and while he's on the way, he encounters thieves. They, uh, you know, confront him. They beat him up. They take everything he has. They leave him bleeding and naked on the side of the road. And Jesus says, a priest comes by. You know, a person who everybody expects to, to be someone who shares God's value when it comes to human life and interacting with people who are suffering. But the priest, for reasons we have to guess, Jesus doesn't just say he passes by. Jesus actually adds this little tidbit. He goes across the street and then he passes by. Now it could be, you know, he's in a hurry and he had to be on the other side of the street. I don't think that's it. It could be that he is in a hurry and he sees this and he's not sure if the thieves are still around and he's, uh, he's scared, so he crosses the street. It could be that he's getting closer to noticing someone who's hurting and he doesn't really want to do anything about it and he, he knows that if he gets closer, if he closes the distance, it might actually break through his hard heart and he's going to have to do something about it so he maintains the distance. But whatever it is, he doesn't help. And then a second religious leader, a Levite, comes by. This guy, on on a brutally unfortunate day, had to think both times when the priest and the Levite come around the corner, it's going to be okay. Levite does the same thing the priest does. Crosses the street, Jesus says, keeps going. And then Jesus continues in verse 33 saying, A Samaritan ...who was on a journey, came to where the man was... ...but when he saw him, he didn't cross the street and hurry on his way... ...he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds... ...tending them with oil and wine... Then he placed the, the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I'll pay you back for any additional cost. And Jesus finishes the story and turns back to the guy and says, what do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? And the legal expert said, the one who was moved by compassion toward him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, the key, as far as I'm concerned, to this entire story is this moment where someone comes across a hurting someone else and is moved by compassion. Doesn't create or maintain distance, but closes the distance at great cost and risk because the Samaritan doesn't know any more than the priest or the Levite did where the thieves are. He doesn't know if it's a setup and an ambush. He doesn't care. He cares about the person who's hurting in front of him and he drops everything to help. And Jesus says to this legal expert, if you want to have life that is truly life, life that doesn't just last forever, but life that is the way that God intended, this is what it looks like. And I've been wrestling with this idea for the past several months and uh, I I want us to read this next statement together because it's a a statement that's really been keeping me up at night. I was briefly up at 4.47 this morning. I didn't know Ginny and I were both awake. (laughs) Unlike her, I went back to sleep, but This is something that's been keeping me up. If we have to resist our God-given sense of compassion to maintain our current way of life, we are not following in Jesus' way of life. Let me make it a little more uncomfortable. Because I think where we really see this play out is how we talk politically. And if in order to hold a position you have to resist your God-given sense of compassion to hold that position. It's not a good position. And I'm not picking which side of the political spectrum to offend. I'm trying to equally bother everyone (laughs) because if you carefully listen to any political position, there's someone who doesn't matter. There's someone who's being silenced. There's someone who's being ignored. There's someone who's who's being resisted. And we tend to choose the positions. Now, we come up with a lot of ways to make it sound not self-focused, but we tend to pick the positions that cost us the least and allow us to turn down the volume of, of God pulling on our heartstrings because either a group of people are are, are, are people we don't understand or relate to easily, or the problem is so complicated and there's so much involved in it, we'd rather not have to think about it. And in order not to think about it, we have to stop thinking about them. And I'm telling you, doesn't matter where you are, the right and the left, we all do it. And brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus if you hear me trying to hold a position about the state of our world where I'm turning down the volume on God's compassion, I hope you find a way in love to call me on it. Because that is not the place. That is not the role God is calling us to. And we all do it. We all do it. I know we're not setting out to do it. I I know we wouldn't even tell someone else that's a good way to move through our broken and shattered world. But there's times, look, I want to be really straightforward with you. If Jesus was telling this parable now, it would be, I think it would be even more challenging Because if if you put yourself in position in this story, if you're the Samaritan, it's not like there's one guy bleeding on the side of the road. Because of our technology, because of what you've got right in your phone right now, because of what you've got on TV and everywhere else, we know now there's not one guy on the side of the road. There's millions. And it's just too much to take in. And it starts to get tricky when it's like, we start to wonder, okay, what do I do when it's not just my choices that are impacting someone, it's a bunch of other people's choices, and I don't have a lever I can pull to fix it all. And if I don't have a lever I can pull to fix it all, if I can't do it all, then I don't really need to try to do anything, right? That's where we go pretty quickly. Sociologists have all kinds of terms for this, right? Compassion fatigue. It's a real thing. We've all felt it. We have got to fight it in Jesus' name. We've got to resist it. We've got to say, Look, I know the temptation is to think it's too far gone. Things are too far rotten. Things are falling apart and there's no way back. And I'm not the person. You're right. I'm right. I'm not the person. You're not the person. God is, and God is looking for openings, for moments where we get to be a part of God's saving work in the world that is always working in ways that we don't have the ability to see. And here's the tricky part. We now, again, because of technology, have a greater ability to see the bad than we've ever had before. We have to fight to see the good, and we have to keep fighting to see the good. Because it's not about figuring out a way to to take down every force that is victimizing people and causing problems and and you and I taking that on by ourselves. It is about us recognizing all of the ways that our world is not the way it's supposed to be and confessing it and telling the truth. The worst thing Christians could ever do is to settle for the world the way it is. But we're not going to fix that by lifting the world and putting it on our shoulders, we're gonna fix it by finding a way to put our own cross on our shoulders every single day and following in the footsteps of Jesus and trusting that what little thing we can do with the person in front of us who's hurting, God will use that to do something beyond our ability. Now listen, I wanna be real clear with this since I meandered into uh, meddling instead of preaching as soon as I said the words political process or whatever, right? I'm going to just tell you this right now. You you don't have to agree with me, but obviously I think I'm right. (laughs) The problems our world is facing is going to take changed individual hearts and lives, and it's going to take... God gathering together people whose lives are being changed and saved by God's grace and fighting those larger forces together. It is. It's going to take all of it. It's not one or the other. And too often when we look at political problems, we say it's just about hearts of individuals and individual responsibility. And then other times we say, no, it's systems that are messed up and they're broken. And you know what? Um, If you pick a place in our world to say that's part of the problem, you're right. It's me and it's us. The great thing about it is God has more than enough power to save me and us. And Christians need to be the people in this world that are saying, we don't have all the answers but our hearts are open to the one who is the answer. We don't know how to fix all this, but we trust that God loves this world and hasn't given up on it yet, so come be a part of, of this thing that God's doing in us and through us. Jesus tells this prophecy in Matthew 25, and I'm purposefully ending the sermon on this parable because if If there was a story in the Bible that makes me feel the way I do when I accidentally get caught, you know, the light's turning yellow, and then it turns red, and I don't want to race through it, but the reason I wanted to race through it was because there's a person standing on the corner with a sign. You know that thing you do in your heart the whole time you're uncomfortably stuck for 90 seconds next to the person with the sign? That's Matthew 25 for me. If it was a person, if this this part of Jesus' teaching was a person. It would be a person with a sign where I'm feeling like I don't know all the reasons the person's there. I don't know how to help exactly. I don't know the best next step to take. And so I start to feel overwhelmed by all those things and I just shut my heart down. By the way, have you ever tried to do this with a young child in the car with you? Have you? The questions they ask you? Because they're not willing to shut their heart down. Because you you raised them better than that. Isn't that rough when you hear your own words coming back to you and it, it stings? I, I can't tell you how many times in, in our lives Lauren and I get stuck next to somebody and one of, the, one of the, our daughters says, I thought you said we're supposed to take care of people, Dad. I, I thought... We're supposed to do whatever we can. Yeah, well, I'm in a hurry. I need to cross the street and go the other way. No. Right? The, the priest or the Levite. All of us have had this wrestling match. And part of the reason we have it is because we've tried to save somebody in trouble before, and it's backfired. Right? But we're not called to save anybody. We're called to care. And to trust that God's going to use what we do through compassion... To save them, Not just the one thing I do, but all kinds of different people interacting with them in their life. That it's not all on me. And so if I can't solve it all, that doesn't automatically give me permission to shut my heart down and decide I'm just going to look the other way. Okay, let's read this together. So you, you've probably at least heard something about this, again, whether you grew up in church or not. But Jesus says, look, a day is coming. And this, the Son of Man, I'm going to be judging between nations, between people. And like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. I'm goats, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to turn to people and I'm going to say to them, you're welcome into the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the creation of the world. You're going to live in the presence of God for all of eternity. And the reason that you're going to get to have that life is because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in and I was naked and you gave me something to wear and I was sick and you took care of me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear? When when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you've done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it for me. Now, the scarier part of the parable is when it continues to go, and he turns to those on his left, right, the, the goats, and says, You didn't feed me, and you didn't give me something to drink, and you didn't clothe me, and you didn't. And they say, Well, when, when did we fail? And he says, when you didn't do it for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you didn't do it for me. And they spend the rest of eternity in a far less pleasant place, Jesus says. Right? Look, I know this is a tricky series. I've been talking to all kinds of different people, asking them, am I being clear? And they all kind of give me the same look like I'm not sure that you are. But I'm not sure how easy it is to be clear about all this. So let me try a, a metaphor. I think our relationship, our interaction with God's saving work in the world is similar to the way we can interact with life-giving water in the world. We can share water with people who need it. We can collect water. We can channel water. We, we, can, do all, we can clean it. We, we can do all kinds of things with water, but without God, we can't create a single molecule of water. Right? Like that, that we know where water comes from, and it's not from us. But we can be caught up in it. You, know, you can swim in water. water. Water can hold you. Water can envelop you, can embrace you. Water can, can do all kinds of things that we absolutely need that nothing else can do. And I want us to stop feeling like we have to figure out how to create water from nothing. And I, I want us to stop acting like we have to, to somehow manufacture God's saving work from nothing. And I want us to simply be caught up in it. To look for it. And when we find it, to be, to, to be swept away in it. In whatever direction it's going at that time, right? And, and we know what God's saving work looks like. It looks like hungry people being fed and thirsty people being being given something to drink. It, it looks like people who don't have enough clothes to wear, being something that, that shelters their body. It looks like people who are sick being taken care of. It looks like people who are imprisoned, having people who still care about them and don't want to throw them away. We know what God's saving work in the world looks like. And in fact, I would argue that church people have been resistant enough to God's saving work in the world that God has had to go outside the church to get it done. And I want us to find a way back to that place. Right? Look, I know. We're we're struggling with how how does this work? And we're going to keep talking about it. We're going to keep trying to imagine what does it look like for us to partner with what God's doing instead of trying to take over what God's doing. But I want to be real clear with you on this. You and I are not, we, we have never been and never will be called to replace Christ in the world. We're called to represent Christ. And that may feel like I'm splitting hairs or I'm barely making a difference in what I'm saying, but I'm telling you it's a, it's a massive shift that we need to maintain in how we see ourselves and think about ourselves and how we relate to the world. It is not my job to replace Jesus. It is my job to help other people encounter Jesus through me. I'm not the hero of the story. I serve the hero of the story. I do whatever I can to keep my heart open to the compassion that God has given me so that I I can sacrifice and be a part of what God's doing to mend this broken world back together again so that we can get from where we are now to that version of the world he's talking about in Micah 4 where everybody has enough and nobody's afraid and everybody's learning how to walk in the way of the Lord because God, not just me or you, but God is teaching them. God is showing them how to live. And all the things that we long to come true will finally come true. We cannot save everyone everywhere. And if the only way we can maintain compassion is to tell ourselves that we can, we're in trouble. So the good news is we aren't called to do this. This is what we're called to do. To do what we can and to keep on caring. I don't find it a coincidence that this last week, we fed, what was it, Stephen? I'm not a good math, but 4,282. Where's Janet? Is that right? Okay. In Mark chapter 8, do you know roughly how many people Jesus fed? Anybody? Okay, 5,000 is a different story because Jesus doesn't just do this once. But in Mark 8, he feeds 4,000. Because on that other occasion, there were just a few less people that were hungry. right? So he fed the people that were in front of him. And both times, Mark points out that that amazing miracle is done by the people who are there giving what they have. And it's not enough to feed all those people, whether it's 5,000 or 4,000 or 4,282. But it's in, in caring And keeping our hearts open and saying, I don't have the answer to all this, but here's what I do have. And then trusting that Jesus takes that, that sacrifice given in good faith and says, stand back and watch. Watch what I do. We can be witnesses. We can be coworkers. And that's exactly what God is asking us to be and to do. But the only way you and I are going to be witnesses and co-workers is if we keep caring. If we keep our hearts and our souls open to the gift of compassion that God has given us. A compassion that refuses to let us write anybody off. Because if anything else has to be true of Christians, it has to be that we're the ones insisting on seeing every single person as the dearly loved child of God they really are. The best way we're, we're going to convince non-believers that the church is a force for good in the world is to keep doing what we can and to keep on caring and to stop trying to win every argument. Just do what we can and keep on caring and stand back and watch what God is able to do. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, my encouragement Uh, To everyone in this room and everyone watching online, my encouragement is don't turn away from the hurt that's in our world. Find a way this week to open your heart up to that truth. But in the moment that you start to feel overwhelmed, the moment you start to have that compassion fatigue creep in, bring those concerns to Jesus and ask for God to open in your heart some sense of of what thing you can do to help. We have to find a way to keep seeing, to keep hearing, not only God's voice, not only God's work, but to keep seeing and hearing God's children. Because wherever people are suffering, that's where we're called to go. Would you stand together and sing?